Hello and welcome to one of our mini episodes, which we do when we just can't wait to bring you an author interview. This time it's with Will Dean, who's talking about his brand new book, The Last Thing to Burn. You might already know Will from his brilliant series about Swedish journalist Tuva, which began with the much acclaimed novel Dark Pines. As you'll hear, Will is the romantic ideal of an author, living as he does with his family in a house in the middle of a Swedish elk forest, as isolated as one of the characters in his Dark Pine novel, although of course not nearly as creepy. His latest novel is very different, set not in Sweden, but instead in the isolation of the East Midland Fens. It's been described, as you'll hear, as a cross between Emma Donoghue's room and Stephen King's misery. So here's Will talking to us all the way from the middle of an elk forest about the last thing to burn. He starts by reading a short excerpt from the book. I'm not going back. Not now, not ever. My right ankle is the size of a fist and I can feel bone shards scraping together. Six-year-old shards as I limp away from the farm cottage towards the distant road. The destination is there. I can see it, but it's not getting any closer. I walk and hobble, and it's still a whole world of pain away from where I am right now. My eyes scan the road, left, then right, for him. Very little traffic. Lorries transporting cabbages and sugar beet. Cars ferrying fruit pickers. One bus a day. I have my five-pound note, his five-pound note, my ticket out of this flatland hell. The creased green papers rolled and tucked into my hair, still black after these nine British years, though only God knows how. Every step is a mile, etched aches and new pains melt into red-hot misery beneath my right knee, boiling fat and razor-sharp icicles all at once. The track is pale October brown, the mud churned and dried and churned by the tractor, his tractor. I move as fast as I can, my teeth biting down onto my tongue. I'm balancing different pains, managing as best I can. He's not coming. I can spot his Land Rover from a mile away. I stop to breathe. The clouds are moving over me, urging me out of this forgotten place, helping me at my back, pushing me along towards that road, towards that one bus a day with my five pound note hidden in my hair. Is that? No. Please, no. It can't be. I stand completely still, my ankle bones throbbing stronger than my own heart, and he is there on the horizon. Is that his truck? Maybe it's just the same model, some plough salesman or school teacher. I look right towards the town past the bridge and left towards the village, places I've never been. My eyes lock onto the Land Rover, his Land Rover. Keep driving, for the love of God be someone else and keep on driving. But he slows, and then my shoulders fall. He turns onto this track, his track, the track to his farm, to his land. I look right at the nothingness, the endless fields he sculpted and the spires in the distance and then left to the wind turbines and the nothingness there. And then back, that's when I weep, tearless, noiseless weeping. I fall, I fold forwards with a crack, a sharp stone beneath my right knee, a blessed distraction from my ankle. He drives to me and I just kneel. With a clean, clear-thinking head, maybe I'd have managed to escape. Not with this leg. Not with him always coming back, always checking on me, always watching.
the last thing to burn is it's been likened to Room by Emma Donoghue and Misery by Stephen King. So it's an incredibly claustrophobic story uh, set on an isolated Fenland farm in the East Midlands. And really, there are only two characters, two main characters, um, a woman and a man. And the setup is that the man is keeping the woman captive in this place. She cannot leave. So the entire story is her surviving this situation, this bleak situation and hopefully getting the better of him. It, it takes place, as you've said, on this Fenland farm with, with its flat landscape all around it, uh, which which really does add to, to uh, Than's isolation and sense of claustrophobia. I'm assuming it's an area you must know well, and, and if so, what was it about the place that drew you to write about it? It is. It's, it's, it's my kind of childhood. I was brought up in East Midlands on the edge of the fence, so not like in the heart of the fence, but on the edge, and I always found them fascinating as a landscape and quite eerie and quite intimidating. You you know, the, these huge skies and the fact that at night or in twilight, it's just very strange, the long straight dikes and the featureless fields and the fact that you can see so far. So I've always been quite spellbound by that landscape. And I like the idea that the main character of this book can't leave this farm, but there are no physical boundaries. There are no mountains or walls or fences. It's an open landscape. It's kind of like an open prison. And it's just this this very bad man who is keeping her there. Picking up on what you were just saying, that it's the isolation of Than's life, which is sort of like the threat. For her, there would be safety in the busy road or in the local village. And I'm assuming that's in contrast to your own life, where I'm guessing you embrace isolation and remoteness, because I understand you, you live in among a vast Swedish forest in a cabin that you built yourself. That's true. That That is true. I do, I do live in the wilderness in Sweden, kind of off grid, you know, very simple, quiet life in the woods. And I love isolation and I love quiet silence and, and not seeing anybody for weeks on end. But that's that's because I have that privilege of being able to leave and see people. I have that privilege of doing what I want to do each day. And maybe the, maybe I kind of feel that contrast with with the main character of the novel and, and the fact that she's controlled in every aspect of her life and her identity is eroded layer by layer constantly. And how that must, I mean, that's terrible wherever you are in the world. But if you are that isolated and you can't reach out to anyone and you can't see another human face apart from the monster that's keeping you captive, it's, it's, a, it's a real horror. The title of the book refers to the fact that at the start of the story that you're telling, she has a very few possessions left. And she knows that if she steps even slightly out of uh, line, that these possessions will get burnt one by one in the, the Rayburn stove of the, of the little cottage. And they are part of what makes her identity, these possessions. And one of the four precious possessions that she has is, is her copy of, of Mice and Men. And I love the way that ideas and incidents within Steinbeck's book kind of get woven throughout the story that you're telling. Could you tell me a bit about what that book means to you and what it means to Than's circumstances. Yeah, it's it, it was hugely important to her in, in in this book. It's kind of this idea of hope and a future and something to to walk towards. And it was kind of the same in a way for me as a, a very socially awkward teenager in the East Midlands at a school where I, I really felt like an alien as a child. I didn't really understand humans very well and I found it just everything quite overwhelming and difficult. And 
my comfort came from reading, you know, from borrowing books in, we had a mobile library that came from village to village. That was my escape, that and nature. And Of Mice and Men is one of those books where I kind of thought, you know, it gave me a sense of hope. Obviously, my situation was extremely, it's not, it can't be compared to hers, but I did want to escape that place and that those troubled teenage years. And, and that book gave me a lot of comfort, I think, as a reader. And I think it does the same for her, partly because it's her only book and her only access to language and story, but also because of the some of those scenes in Of Mice and Men, when they talk about the rabbits and the alfalfa patch, it is ex- it is a very pure kind of uh, impression of hope and of there being something else. When you're in a bad spot, there's something else that, that you know, life is life can improve. There's another theme w- which I felt ran through the book, and actually you've touched on it already. That is that Fan's determination against all the odds to retain her own sense of self and identity, even while she has to kind of produce this sort of performance of compliance for her captor. And it comes up even in that short piece that you uh, you read at the beginning, the way that she'll refer to, first of all, she'll say, my nighty or my pinny. And then she kind of immediately corrects herself. And this is a repeating theme. She'd she'd say his mother's nighty or his mother's pinny. And I love Than's determination and resilience in these small things like that to keep her own identity. And was that was that something you were keen to convey? Exactly. It is. It, It was it was I just when when I came up with the idea for this book, I just saw this person who was being controlled and dominated by a very quietly menacing character who you know he he was not a, a an angry person in the sense that he would burn all of her possessions all at once which is terrifying in one way but in a, in a sense this is more horrific he would lay down her three remaining possessions let's say and then he would ask her to choose which one to burn and that's just a whole other level of evil and then he would wait you know he would go and feed the pigs and come back so she would have to think about this photo of her parents that she's had to decide to burn the last photo of her own parents and that 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 degree of of control terrifies me it really does especially in a domestic situation like that it's quite relatable you know this is happening in on one level to some degree in many households around the world and it's it's frightening to think of the uh, physical and psychological means by which she is kept enslaved it's a very difficult thing to read although very gripping at the same time and i i'm guessing you had to do quite a lot of research to do that part of the story justice i did yeah this um i write first drafts very quickly so the first draft of this book took me three weeks but that was back in 2017. I had the idea in 2016. So it's kind of taken four plus years for me to write this book. And it's not a long book. And that's because I wanted to get as many details right as I could. I wanted to get her experience to be as authentic as possible. I wanted to do all of that research, you know, read those papers, read those firsthand accounts of that kind of experience. I wanted to, even small details like the particular crops sown in particular seasons I wanted to get that right so that the setting would feel real and Len's dialect as well another thing that I I was quite heavy-handed with my first draft because I know that dialect very well it's kind of my granddad's voice in my head or my voice even from my childhood and I wanted to balance that so that it was readable and it wasn't too thick so yeah the research was really important I wanted to do than justice that's that's the main thing I didn't want to fail her as a character she was so important to me and I, I kind of had a knot in my stomach every time I reread or rewrote or edited this book. And I don't normally when I write. And it's because I was so invested in her and her future, really. Now, there's a few moments in the book where 
where Thane takes herself out of the present moment by, for example, watching a plane go by and imagining the lives of people on board and knowing there's a life outside her situation. And another time when she pictures what her circumstances would look like from outer space. Do you think those moments helped Thane to keep going? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's difficult to know. It, it, that kind of hunting for perspective helps me when I'm very anxious and worried about something. I, if I can't make sense of a day-to-day -day issue, I tend to kind of go to astronomy or go to some history perspective or something to try and get make sense of the world. So, yeah, I think that's a very hum, a human reaction is one potential human reaction is to kind of zoom out and try and see your situation from another in another way in another visual and i hope like with of mice and men i hope that gave her some comfort now this book is it's very much centered on women's relationships unusually perhaps uh, about sisterhood motherhood and female friendships and i did find it as a woman reader totally convincing and very relatable and i imagine that was quite a challenge to make sure you were getting that right Thank you for saying that. I, I, it's, it's really important to me to get that right. It's just something that I, I try my best with, you know, and like any writer, you have to be as empathetic as you can be. And I think it helps that I grew up a lot, around a lot of strong women who were open with their emotions and their feelings and more so than the men around. And so I think that's, that's definitely helped me to write these characters. But um, like any writer, I'm just trying to do my best to inhabit that other character for a while and, and do them justice. Now, you just talked there about the, the benefits that uh, books brought to you as, a, as an awkward teenager growing up. And I'm also interested to see that you talk about compulsively reading as well as writing. So what, what kind of books do you avidly read? I mean, I, I kind of read everything. I, I'm quite, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not uh, loyal to any particular genre. I read everything from crime thrillers, a lot of literary fiction, historical fiction, some science fiction. I, 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 I read poetry collections. I read everything. I just love language. And I love storytelling. And I know that, you know, I'm 41, but I'm still I'm at the very beginning of my journey. So I need to read authors who are better than I am if I'm to progress. And that's what I want to do. You know, I'm not someone who's focused at all on the business of publishing. And I think that's partly because I'm so far away from it. I'm here in the woods. All of that seems very distant. Um, all I'm trying to do is get better at storytelling, book on book. That's, that's what makes me um, content. So yeah, I read a lot, uh, still for the same reason, really. It gives me a lot of comfort to read. And if I read 100 books in a year, I have no idea which one of those books will help me as a writer or as a human. And often it's a book or two that really push me forwards that I never would have expected. So I don't limit myself to a particular book that's a huge bestseller right now. Or I, I read books, I try and read books from all over the world and books you know, written 70 years ago, just as much as are written now. I would say this book is is very different territory from your successful series about the Swedish journalist Tuva. And forgive me if I'm going completely off on a tangent, but I am also very interested in the roots of Swedish crime fiction, um, particularly the Martin Beck series, which were written back in the 60s and 70s, which I think kind of set the standard for modern crime fiction today. Now, the writers of the Martin Beck series, you might be able to pronounce their names, I would expect, better than better than me. Is it Marge Sowell and Per Wallou? I can't, I've no idea how I that. think you've done very well. I'm not going to try and <laughs> improve on that. 
but they always saw crime fiction as a way to examine society around them. And I think the spirit of this idea seems to be very present in The Last Thing to Burn, which with its focus on human trafficking and enslavement. Do you think there's any anything in what I'm saying that this this harking back to the Martin Beck and, and the idea of talking about our society through thrillers, crime fiction, that kind of thing? I think so. Yeah, I think they definitely... Uh, were very important in that kind of idea. So is Val McDermott, I think, in Scotland. So is so are some American writers. I think, yeah, good fiction, including crime fiction, especially, it kind of has to touch at some point on some big social theme, some important social theme. And that's because I think if your if your fiction is character led, if you're interested in characters, maybe more than plot which I, that's my starting point, is a, is a person, a character, then characters are going through things. So unless, unless your character's not doing a lot or is, is not living in, in some kind of community, then they will be going through something which is likely to touch upon some important social issue of the day. And the Martin Beck novels certainly did that. Val McDermott's, and it's not something that I set out to do ever in a book, but it always happens kind of accidentally. You know, I, I, I always start off with a landscape and I, I see a character in a landscape and I want to understand their story, but their story always involves some big social question. Finally, are you already working on your next book? I'm guessing you are, as this one was so many years in fruition. So uh, if so, do you know what it's going to be about? Will you be revisiting Tuva or is this going to be a, a different direction altogether? So I will... I. I like working. I really love writing. I find I get quite itchy and <laughs> anxious if I'm not writing and there's not a lot else to do here in the in the forest. So I I kind of work every day of the year and there will be more Tuva books. There's, I'm working on Tuva number five right now. So number four will be out next year. I think there will be, I think there will go on and on. I love writing Tuva. I still don't understand her yet. So I'm interested to write much more of her. With the standalone novels, I've just written the second standalone book, which is set. It also involves identity and sibling relationships and family and love but it's set in new york so as far away as you could get from the fens so some some similar themes but a very different landscape Since reading The Last Thing to Burn, I've been listening to Will's other books by downloading them from Borrowbox. I loved Dark Pines and reserved Red Snow to listen to immediately I'd finished it. There's just time to thank our supporter Borrowbox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. Remember, all you need is your library membership number and PIN. That's it for this mini version of the podcast. I'll be back soon with Hattie for our next full-length episode. Thanks for joining me. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. <laughs>